Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. This Navy SEAL has written 20 books. He's a world-class athlete. He's got some very interesting stories about his time in the service and even after. I love his mantra. I love how he operates. His name is Mr. Don Mann with two N's. And uh, you're going to really enjoy this episode. And I really appreciate you listening to Straight Out of Combat Radio. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night. You were born to fight. My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all before they burn it down. Our guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero is former Navy SEAL Team 6 Commando, world-class adventure competitor, and New York Times bestselling author, Mr. Don Mann. Now, I got to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, this retiree's biography is impressive. He's a decorated combat veteran, a corpsman, a SEAL Special Operations Technician, Jungle Desert and Arctic Survival Instructor, Small Arms Weapons Instructor, Foreign Arms Weapons Instructor, Armed and Unarmed Defense Tactics advanced hand-to-hand combat instructor, and survival, evade, resistance, and escape instructor, in addition to lots of other credentials. This is a guy you want on your side. Just by reading those credentials, this is a person that you don't want to come face-to-face if you're the enemy. It's good stuff. Don is the author of 11 books, including the New York Times best-selling autobiography, Inside SEAL Team 6, My Life and Missions with America's Elite Warriors. The members of SEAL Team 6 are synonymous with heroism, duty, and justice. These are the same elite warriors who assassinated Osama bin Laden. That's a name every American and just about everybody across the world knows. Thank God he's gone. Anyhow, as a member of the elite team of warriors, Don worked in countless dangerous operations around the world to include Somalia, Panama, El Salvador, Colombia, Afghanistan, and Iraq. He was even captured by the enemy once, and he lived to tell the tale, because I'm seeing him right now. He's, he's, he, he got away from those people. To become a SEAL, Don had to overcome his own troubled childhood and push his body to its breaking point and beyond. Don's narrative is all about physical and mental toughness, to say the least. He has over 40 years, that's a thousand plus races worth of competitive racing experience, and was once ranked 38th in the entire world as a triathlete. Don received a master's in management from Troy State University in Troy, Alabama, a BS in international relations and criminal justice from Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida, go Knowles, and a BS in liberal science from State University of New York. He lives in Cape Charles, Virginia. Let's just say it's a huge understatement when I tell you that I'm honored and humbled to have Mr. Man here on Straight Out of Combat Radio. Welcome, Don. Thank you for being here, brother. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's a lot going on right now. We're under this isolative, uh, we're in isolation right now because of the coronavirus. And, and I know everybody out there scared and trying to figure out what's going on. And, you know, it, it looks like the curves are starting to come down. But let's talk about the man household and uh, what was it like growing up? Well, you know, as a, uh, I have a brother and two sisters and a nice mother and father growing up, and um, we moved around a lot. Uh, we lived in Germany for three years, and throughout New England, my father's job required a lot of moving. And as a young guy, I remember always getting to a new location and just finding the words, going out a long, long ways and trying to find my way home. That was like my sport. And that was second, third, fourth grade, fifth grade, I guess. And then... Um, then I got interested in motorcycles and uh, I want to become a pro motocross racer. And then that's how I got into sports by training to become a professional motocross racer. And then that went into the marathons. I started running to get in better shape for motocross. And I ran my first marathon, which was Boston Marathon. Then I did 30 more in the next three years and became a good runner. 
And then the Ironmans came out, and then um, I, I was doing the Hawaii Ironmans, and uh, was, you know that first generation group doing the Ironmans. And then I, that took over my life for a good ten years or so, being a triathlete. And then when adventure racing came about, the five hundred milers and the six hundred milers, that was another ten years of my life. All I did was train, and when I for workout Friday after work, <laughs> I'd have all the course set up. I'd go and I'd train. Friday, Friday night, throughout Saturday, throughout Saturday night, throughout Sunday, and in the Monday morning. So the workouts would be 40-hour nonstop workouts. And uh, so that was what I did on weekends. And um, the sports, I, I just loved pushing myself. I loved hallucinating. Not so much hallucinating, but I loved pushing myself to the point of hallucination. And I loved to the point of push myself to the point of passing out. Not because it felt good or anything. I didn't like that part. It felt terrible. But I liked that I knew I was giving it my all to my for my teammates. And then um, I got into mountain climbing, and I got hurt on Mount Everest a couple of years ago. And I'm still recovering from that. I got pulmonary edema and cerebral edema. And with pulmonary edema, the side effects with the scar tissue and all, I have to be careful now with the coronavirus. And I am being careful. So, yeah, I, 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 want, I set a goal to do over 1,000 races. But I had that goal finished in the 80s, and I'm still racing. And I just like racing because it's uh, not to get trophies or medals so much, but just so you have a goal and you have something to go after. I just need a goal. I, I do so much better with a goal. No, I, I hear you on that, you know, and I think what you're describing is probably a beast. You know, I think passing out or, you know, hitting that wall, it's all about the, the endorphin rush and the kind of things that you're describing, Don, or like the ultimate in endurance type of things. And, and and it does take a strong mental mindset to push through that wall. You know, I've been on, I haven't been on Everest. I've had a couple of buddies of mine actually make it to the summit. Aconcagua has been my, you know, my seventh, you know, one of the seven summits. But, you know, we did guided trips to the Andes for, for all those years, a little over 12 years. So I get it, you know, and, and the nice thing about climbing, you can probably relate to this is, you know, it's the toughest thing. It's the toughest solo sport you'll ever do, but you're on a rope team. So I love that stuff too. But anyhow, it's about you, man. It's not about me. Tell us about how you got to the Navy. Well, um, my father was a real patriot and so were his brothers and his sister. Everybody on that side of the family is very patriotic. And World War II came, the Japanese attacked and they all quit work. My father quit high school. They joined the military. And he, he instilled a sense of patriotism in our, our family. And any time there would be a bombing or some soldiers or military people killed, he would say a prayer and you could see him weeping, you know, his tears would come down his face. And he was really a real patriot. And then he went off and um, after he retired, he uh, was very much as a, he was a state commander in the Veterans Foreign Wars and he just loved giving to the, to, to the troops, you know. So he instilled this in me. And in high school, I was a rebel. I was a troublemaker. I was uh, always just pushing the limits, you could name it. If it was wrong, I was doing it and having a blast doing it. I had a great time. But uh, I get you that, know that man. story. Yeah. We can't say some things on the air, you know. Yeah. But the thing is, as soon as I had a direction like sports or SEAL training, then all that wild energy went to something good. And that's... And if I hadn't found that, I would have been in trouble because I was just all over the place. But when I um, heard about SEAL training, nothing in the world mattered to me other than doing everything I could to be a SEAL. And I trained, I don't, I don't know anybody who trained any harder than I did. I mean, I, I was training good 40 to eight hours a week, every week for years. And um, I loved it. And I loved training. And uh, I did a lot of visualization to get ready for it. And I did everything I could to, everything I ate was to make me a, for a stronger workout, to be a better SEAL. You know, I didn't have a backup plan, which helped because with a backup plan, a lot of guys, when they go through buds and it starts getting hard, they start thinking, oh, shoot, I could go be a pilot or I could go be a cook or I could go do something else. But if you don't have a backup plan, boom, you just got to do what they say and you do it and you're going to be a SEAL if you do everything right and don't get hurt. So what year did you go to buds? What, what, 82. 1982. So, and obviously Coronado, Southern California, where all the Navy SEALs go. And, you know, what time of the year were you down there? 
Um, I went there in March and left in December. Tell us about that. You know, SEAL training is hard. It's really hard. But I'll, I'll say some things. For one, is I did four years of visualization along with my physical training to get ready for SEAL training for BUDS. And um, every day in BUDS, I'd get back to the barracks and think, that was a really hard day. But it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. Because I did the visualization. For me, the swims were so much colder and so much longer. And the push-ups, there were so many more while I visualized it. So it was still hard. Every day was really hard. But it was always a relief, like, it's not as hard as I thought it was going to be. So the visualization worked. And I made it through the first time. I, I can honestly say I never, ever thought about quitting. And um, But there were times in the cold water, I was hoping I'd just pass out so I'd get pulled out of that cold water. That was the hard part. And I like the physical aspects of buds. It's a good time also. You always hear the hard things about it. And it was hard. But um, I would have paid to have done it. I mean, it's it's a good time also. It's a lot of fun. You know, we read a lot about the bell, the ringing of the bell. What kind of an effect did that have on you? Because I know you heard it. Oh, yeah, boy. Well, you start off with the green helmet first phase, and then you have a blue helmet second phase, then a red helmet third phase. Every phase is about two months. And so when you're in first phase, you have these green helmets with your class number painted on it. And when you get there, there's a bell, and you don't even want to look at it. You hear all the stories, you know. And then um, if somebody's really having a hard time, you can see it. If they're having a hard time, they're not making the runs or giving up on different physical evolutions. Sometimes you'll get up in the morning and you'll see that helmet of that guy under the bell. Because what, what they'll do, ring the bell three times, put your helmet there. But you'll, the, those guys who quit do it without anybody seeing them. Because it's so humiliating for them. And it's something I think it'll affect them for their entire lives when they quit. Because they have to say, I was going to be a SEAL, but I quit, which is the worst thing you can imagine saying that I, that you quit. So um, it's really sad. You go through a couple weeks, then you see 10 helmets under there. By the end of first phase, there's 50 green helmets under that bell. And those people are just gone. They're gone. And uh, you feel bad for them because you become friends with them, you know. But um, you don't let it get you down. You just have to be there for your teammates who are, who are going to hopefully going to be a seal someday with you. You know, it's not meant for everybody. And if they quit to tell you the truth, John, if anybody quits in training because it's hard, they certainly, you don't want them to be a seal. You don't want them in the seal teams because if somebody quits because they're doing a lot of push-ups or pull-ups or sit-ups or long swims, and they think that's hard, it's nothing compared to combat. You know, who cares if you do a lot of, if you do push-ups all day long, if it's too much on your body, you'll pass out. And I've done that a number of times. I push myself to the point of passing out. And then I know I couldn't give any more. But if people say, ah, oh, this is too hard, I quit, they shouldn't be considered as a SEAL ever. No, so the physical part is is, is a huge part of it, no doubt. It's it, What you're describing, Don, is the mental aspects of a Navy SEAL. <laughs> You know, I mean, yeah. and, and you're 110% right now. I'm not a Navy SEAL and I probably would have been ringing the bell. I don't know. But, but, <laughs> you know, but I, all I know is, is you're, you're, you're right. You don't want somebody on a team anywhere that's going to quit, especially in a combat situation. You know, even mm -hmm. doing guard duty in army, even though it was all simulated, you knew that if you fell asleep, people could die. And, you know, there were guys that fell asleep on guard duty. Are you kidding me? So I can't even imagine the Navy SEAL. Yeah. So so you made it to the red helmet stage, obviously. And yeah. tell us a little bit about, about those progressions. And then, yeah, tell us what that graduation was like. You must have been feeling like on top of the world, man. Yeah. So I think we had maybe about 125 or so people start our class. And they dwindled down. And by the time you get to second phase, dive phase, we had maybe 50 people left. And then when you finish the dive phase, which is all ship attacks, you know, learning how to dive uh, different types of scuba and closed circuit and mixed gases and sneaking under ships and placing limpid mines on them and boarding ships. And it's all water. It's all water. Dive phase is all in the water. But it's hard. And the physical 
it's the PTs on, they always say first phase is the hardest for physical, but dive phase is harder. Plus you're learning a skill set, diving. And plus you have to learn the physics and all the dive chemistry, all, all that. So then uh, once you finish that, then it gets really fun because uh, most guys who want to be SEALs want to do the land warfare, the shooting and the weapons and the blowing things up. And uh, that that's a blast. Then you go out to San Clemente Island and all you do is missions and blow things up and shoot up things. And it's really SEAL work. The diving, not many SEALs are really excited about diving. It's pitch black. It's always freezing cold. And you're underwater for four hours. <laughs> and you don't see a thing. Try to find your ship underwater. But going through the jungle or the desert or the woods or through the urban terrain, and you have a mission to go into a building or to blow something up, that's what most guys are there for. So that part's a lot of fun. So when we got to our third phase, we had 23 people left. So that's you lose a lot of people, but you're so tight with those guys, and uh, you know they don't quit. And um, But then you come back from the island, and there's about a week before you graduate, and you're just getting a uniform ready, and it's almost like you can't believe it's going to happen. And then um, you're all dressed up in your whites and clean faces and everything. <laughs> and you go up and um, get your trident. It is, I think, the proudest moment of anyone's life. Absolutely. I, I, I just, you know, people, you know, we read books about that kind of stuff. And, you know, when you finally earn that trident, they put that on your uniform. You said it's the proudest moment. Tell us about that day. Well, that trident, this is it here. Yeah. And, um, whoops, right there. Yeah. It's the uh, largest medal in the military. And it's a big uh, eagle, and he's got a musket, and there's an anchor. So it stands for sea, air, and land, seal. Sea is the anchor, air is the eagle, land is the musket. And uh, so it's a big trident. It's got three pins on the back of it. And they put it in uniform, and everyone comes by and hits you hard. And you're just trickling a lot of blood because those three pins are being pounded into you. <laughs> but you don't care at all. Who cares, right? It doesn't matter. At that point then, uh, when you're a young SEAL, a good young SEAL, you're all ears. And you just get to a SEAL team. I went to SEAL Team 1, which is the team I wanted to be at. And you just listen and learn from all the veterans who are there. And they speak and you just do what they say. And you're, you're a sponge. But then before you know it, now you're starting to uh, be in a leadership role. And before you know it, you're in charge of things. It just happens so fast. And so I went to one, and uh, and as badly as I wanted to be a SEAL, once I was a SEAL, then my, my focus was I want to go to six real bad. Those guys have long hair, the civilian clothes. They're so cool. You know, they're doing all these missions all over the world. Nobody even knows what they do. Funding's unlimited. Everybody will. I don't understand why a SEAL wouldn't want to go to SEAL Team 6. If you want to be a SEAL, why not go to SEAL Team 6? But it's hard to get there. You have to have your marks up there, and you have to be ranked, you know, pretty well. And, and then you put in a request to get interviewed, and the guys from 6, a handful of them come, real big bruiser-looking guys, very intimidating they put you through a series of interview questions. And if they want you, they take you right from that SEAL team and you're gone. I remember my commanding officer said to the SEAL Team 6 commanding officer, you're not going to take Doc, well, I was a corpsman, they called me Doc. You're not going to take Doc Man, are you? And the commanding officer at SEAL Team 6 says, we take anybody we want to. And I was gone that week. Wow. And then, and then when you go to SEAL Team 6, you're start all over again. Then you go to this thing called Green Team, which I think was harder than Buds. The PTs weren't much harder. They, they were just, it wasn't to break you down. It was just to make you stronger. Everything you did in that four to six month period uh, made you a really, really finely tuned SEAL. But you're all ears. Now you let, you're working with all these SEAL Team 6 guys who are the best of the other SEALs. Then you go to one of the assault squadrons and then you're a brand new guy and you just listen. And before you know it, you start getting up in the middle management. Before you know it, you're leading a team. It just happens fast, you know. So what you're describing is like just when you just when you think you got somewhere, 
it just gets a little bit tougher. So as you're going down this road and you progress into the next tough stage, the next tough stage, you're actually being groomed for some of the toughest missions that America can fight. If you choose for that path, and because you could go to a SEAL team, you can go to SEAL Team 1 or any of the SEAL teams, and you could say, okay, I like it here. My kids are in school down the road. I've got a house. I think I'm going to stay here. I'm very comfortable with this team. You could limit your challenges with that. And it's not to say they had it easy at all. All the SEALs are working like crazy. Back before these wars started, there were people who could, we call it homesteading. You could stay at one team for 10 years or so before, so you don't have to move back and forth, back, you know, to the East Coast, to West Coast, and back and forth. But now, you know, two wars going on, the guys are gone all the time. You know, they're gone for a year. Can you describe your first combat deployment? The, the first thing I did of any significance, I was brand new team guy, and they handpicked four of us from the team. And, um, and we're very, very honored to be part of this selection. And um, the Commodore of the SEAL team came and tested us and seen if we could do everything correctly. The other guys on the SEAL team didn't know what we were doing. And so what we had to do, we went to Egypt and we met with our Egyptian commando counterparts. And uh, we trained with them for a while. They would get a snake, kill it, uh, bang its head on on your on the person's boot, peel the skin back and eat the snake, and do it the same with the frog. And the poisonous snakes that do the same thing, kill the snake, put the snake in the mouth, peel the skin back, take the venom sacs out and eat it. So we all did this. We all did the same thing, but we all got food poisoning. And they didn't know what the mission was we were going to do or go on. It was in a, in a country, you know, we don't really talk about. And so we are sick. The four of us were sick. And where we had to go was infested with sharks. The Arabs killed all these sharks, all these camels, and they put the camel intestines, the entrails of the camels, in the water, and they threw it off these piers, and that's where our dive was. So the four of us got in what we call a rubber duck. The, the boat goes out, the rubber duck goes out, and you parachute after it. It's a night jump. And the four of us want to get out of that water as quickly as we could because of all the sharks we knew of. And, uh, and then we motored up to the enemy beach, and the enemy beach was about 200 meters away. We just stayed low so we can see over the boat and see if there's any enemy activity. We didn't see any, so then we got up to about 100 meters away. After we didn't see anybody for a while, my buddy and I, we swam off the boat. We jumped off the boat, swam into the land, and we had to find a place to do a reconnaissance. So if the land was like this, there's water on three sides, and over here was an air facility and, and a runway, and over here was a shipyard, but there's water on three sides of us. So we pulled up in here. We had to find a place where we could look at the aircraft and the, and the landing strip and the ships. We couldn't find a place, so we dug a hole in the center, and in that hole, uh, it was just sand. It was desert. We dug one hole, we buried the boat and the motor and everything and buried it with sand. And then in the other hole, the four of us went in that hole and we took camouflage netting and put it over our heads. We had long hair and beards and our weapons and rucksacks and goggles on because there's terrible sandstorms down there. But there's camouflage netting over our heads. But we all had food poisoning and um, we all had diarrhea and uh, we're all vomiting. And we couldn't get out of the hole. So we we're doing all that in the hole. But then at high tide, the hole filled up with sand and water. So we're basically, we're in a sewage for three days. Oh, man. And um, we're still getting the job done. On the third day, as sick as could be, I got IVs in the other three guys. I was, I was a medic. And they couldn't get one in me. I just had a lot of holes in my arm and infected arm for all the tries. They couldn't get one in me. But we're all really dehydrated and sick, and our ears were filled with sand, our noses were filled with sand, we had goggles on. We're just sitting in that hole and taking turns sleeping. And some guy started walking towards the hole in the middle of the sandstorm, and all his clothes were blowing in the wind. And we got everybody up, we all had our weapons, we're looking up through the camouflage netting, 
he came walking right towards the hole. He didn't see us at first. Um, we were buried. And then he saw something strange in the desert floor. And then he looked, and there was camouflage netting, and he could see through the holes. And four guys in there with long hair and beards with weapons. And he put his hands up, and he ran off. And so we got caught. And um, and you mentioned that in the intro. That's the one of the times. It happened twice, actually. But this was the worst of the two. And then we get we did get caught. He went off to the village and got some reinforcements. But in that time he was gone, we did everything we could to get that boat inflated, get it out of the other hole, get the motor on the boat. And then 14 guys with AK-47s came off off to our, you know, I was, I was pointing out the land was like this. They came off over here, came over a knoll, and they just appeared on us, 14 of them. And they were kids, scared to death with a fingers on the trigger. And one of the guys said, guys, put your hands up. So we put our hands up. We, we never hear that before. And they circle around us. They're all pointing their weapons at our chest and at our heads. And they were scared to death. All you saw were black faces and big white eyes. But the fingers were all on the triggers, which I thought they could have an accidental discharge. I didn't think they'd shoot us, because if they did, it'd go through us and into their teammates, you know. They probably didn't think like that at all. But anyways, um, they held us at gunpoint, and then they said to, to us, one of them could speak broken English, down, down, down on the ground. We shoot you in the back for trespassing. We said, no, we're going to go back in that boat. We're going home. It's all broken English. And they sent someone back to the village who could speak better English, and they held us at gunpoint overnight. And the villager guy came back who could speak broken English. He said, you guys are trespassing. We're going to kill you and shoot you in the back uh, for trespassing. We said, no. We're going to go back in our boat and go home. We had these little fake CIA get-out-of-jail cards, and one of my buddies went to go get his, and they put four AKs right up to him. And we thought he was going to get it. And uh, those cards wouldn't have done a thing because those people can't read. You know, they can't read English. And uh, so anyways, we went back and forth arguing that we're not going to do what they told us to do. We're going to go back in our boat. They let us go. They let us go. They said, go, go, go. Nobody got hurt. We went out to sea, stayed there for a night, and came back around and finished the mission. We won, and they lost. So that, that was the first thing I saw. And that was right after I got in. It was probably a year or so after I got in. That's one one heck of a story. And, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and especially probably people that aren't really well-trained. And, you know, when they're that young, they must have been freaking out. But let me ask you this, Don. You know, looking back on it now, would you have done that all over again? Yeah, absolutely. And you know what my favorite part of it was, John? My favorite part, nobody complained. Nobody said, ah, oh, this works, no fun. Oh, I didn't sign up for this. This is terrible. Nobody complained. We all were there because that's what we wanted to do, that type of work. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. Well, I'm glad, I'm, glad, I'm glad those guys let you go, man. And I know that... Uh, I know you are too. And uh, can you tell us about a mission where you where you didn't get caught? And I know you had a lot more of those than you did those that type of mission. But can, you know, without going into anything that's going to compromise any tactics or anything, but maybe it's Bin Laden. Were you on that mission? I wasn't on the Bin Laden raid. I had just gotten out. I was working for the U.S. government for an agency, and we were going after him as an agency. The military was going after him as a military. I did a a bunch of uh, raids and shipboarding and things from my time in Central South America, 89 to 93. That was the drug wars back then. So we did a lot of that. There was one time, it was just a, uh, this was kind of a, a bad, bad, oh, well, you know, sometimes bad things happen and then good comes out of it. There was a ship, everybody on the ship was killed. The Army had killed everybody, the U.S. Army. Uh, two law rockets were fired at the ship. And we went out there to get the ship out, and it smelled like death. It was terrible. It was a hot summer day, and all the dead bodies were there for days. The driver got hit with a 50 cal, and phew, his, what was left of his head was scattered all over the wall and a little bit of brain matter on the ground. And you could see where everybody was killed and shot. And so I told the guys, just take the bodies, throw them overboard. The drugs, everything, all the drugs and things, marijuana, basically, stored overboard. The EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal People, they came through and they checked it. 
make sure there wasn't any explosives on it. And the intel, all the intel you see, just keep it in a pile here. So we went a couple days without sleep by the time we got to the ship. We towed it to a place called Fort Sherman in Panama. And um, we got to Fort Sherman around noontime. The master chief there, the engineer in charge, called me Doc. He says, Doc, would you do me a favor? Go down below and check the shaft, the hull, and the screw to see if there's any damage from the law rockets. So I got my dive gear on. And usually you dive with a buddy, but I, I was going down alone. I said, hey, master chief, if you need me for anything, just bang on the deck three times with something, and I'll surface. So I was getting ready to go down the ladder, and he picked up right on the side of him a pipe. He thought it was a pipe. And he banged it three times on the deck. I didn't see what was in his hand. I heard it. I saw him doing that. I said, yeah, that's great. I hear it fine. But what he had was a large rocket round that hadn't been exploded. It was a dud. Mm. The fuse on that is so sensitive, sometimes raindrops or light sensitivity could set them off. And this skidded across the deck of the boat. The fins were off, so it didn't look like a large rocket round. It looked like a pipe. In his view, I didn't see it. In his view, it looked like a pipe. We should have been blown to smithereens. You know, those go through tanks. We should have been blown through sm to smithereens. So I went down. I checked in the, the shaft, the hull, and the screw. I was down there for about a half hour. And this was about noontime or so. Nine o'clock at night, that large rocket round was all over the ship. People using it for sounding checks, banging on pipes. I didn't see it ever. I never saw it. But we had a tent right next to the ship. And there was a dumpster right next to the tent, all within 20 meters. And I told my guys on day three, go get some sleep. It's nine o'clock. We'll get up early. We'll finish all this stuff tomorrow morning. So all our guys went to the racks in the tent. The engineer, two engineers were still on the ship when three army guys walked up. And they said, hey, we understand you have this enemy ship. We understand there's some enemy uniforms on there. We'd like to collect them because we have a war museum we started. And they said, well, we threw them all in the dumpster right next to our tent. They said, you can have them if you, uh, if you want to go in the dumpster and get them. So they went over to the dumpster. Two of them jumped in, got a bunch of stuff. One of them stayed in there. And he went down. He thought he saw a flashlight. And the law rocket went off in his face and in his chest. He got blown out of the dumpster. His eyes were here. He lost his hand, his fingers, his leg. He had thousands of pieces of shrapnel on him. And I was maybe 20 feet away, and so we thought we got attacked. And I just grabbed my medical gear and my weapon, ran out there, and the other two Army guys were yelling, medic, medic, medic. And I never, you know, I've seen quite a few dead people, but I've never seen a dead person who looked, who looked more dead and was still alive. He looked terrible, but he was still living. I went down, ABC, you know, airway, breathing, circulation, disability, exposed. I did everything I'm supposed to. I went through my bag real, real quickly, and um, he started moving. He started even talking. Got him on a helicopter after about an hour or so. When the helicopter finally came in, he passed away in the helicopter. They got him into a burn center or a center in Texas. He passed away there. And um, he gave, I, I gave the medics a little picture, a stick figure drawing of all the injuries I treated on him. I just gave it to the pilot. And anyways... Five, six months later, I get this thank you letter for saving his life. His name was Captain Mark Meisner. And I was so happy he, he was alive, you know. And um, anyways, that was it. 20 years after, 25 years later, I got a phone call from a Captain Mark Meisner. And he found me. And he said, I was blown up in Panama and you saved my life. He just invited me to his retirement ceremony. He was in the intel field for 30 years after that. That happened in 90, so 10, 20, 30. So he just retired, 30 years of retirement, you know. He, he died twice, they resuscitated. He's got all shrapnel in his organs. Wow. You know, we met, we met, and I could tell he had a glass eye and prosthetic hands and legs. And I said, let's go meet at a Mexican restaurant. We met there, I could tell it was him. So good things happened because he, his wife left him, then he got remarried. A beautiful woman, and they had kids, and he's as happy as can be. You know, not blowing up on the boat was one thing, but I mean, 
God bless you and for, for saving that guy's life and, you know, him being able to to carry on with his life, even though dented, he was able to lead something constructive. So thank you for sharing that story. That's pretty intense, really, uh, when you think about it. Yeah, it meant a lot. You know, I, always, I love saving lives. That's why I love being a medic, saving lives. But when a story comes around and after decades later, you know, I'm not married now, but I was married then. And my daughter and my wife were with me, and we went to his house. It was emotional. His wife started crying, saying, oh, my God, if you didn't save my husband, I wouldn't have been with the best man I've ever met. And the little girl was crying and said, you saved my daddy's life. My girls started crying. So it was all – but it was the ending. You know, the bad part was the initial part. After that, it was all good. You know, he's had a happy, happy life ever since. And So I really uh, get a lot out of it when those things happen. Well, like I said, Don, thanks for sharing that. So let me, so when you finally, you know, you did your time in the service, you know, when, and then you, but you kind of didn't really leave the service. You went into things that were very similar. It was right after I got out, you know, SEALs were being being picked up for different agencies because of their skill sets. And I went right to work immediately. And um, that's when I, I think I made eight or nine trips to Afghanistan and, and Iraq and Somalia and Yemen and all the dirt circuit, what we call the dirt circuit, where all the trouble was. So I did that for a little over 20 years with the government after I retired. When did you write your book? Did you write your book during that time? Well, I didn't want to say anything, but when you mentioned on the bio, I guess that's maybe an old bio because I've written 20 books now. So you've had like, you had not, no, you got to say things, man. Are you kidding me? How many people write 20 <laughs> books? I mean, congratulations. That's awesome, man. So, well, I thought it was up to date. So you've written 20 books, but your first book was the, was your autobiography? I have to update that. That's my fault. <laughs> you got it off the web. I just have to update it. <laughs> but, but the first book was the autobiography, was it? No, nope. Uh, actually, I told you I got so into adventure racing. I was uh, racing all over the world, the Himalayas, and Ecuador, and South Africa, the hardest races in the world I was racing in them. And then I started putting on adventure races for other people. And then a lot of people just always wanted to ask me to how to train for adventure racing. So then I created what's called Odyssey Adventure Racing Academy. So it's a six-day academy out in the woods in West Virginia. We had this nice log cabin and training facility out there. So I was teaching it, putting on races, and racing at the highest level. And a politician, his name is Quinton Kidd, a Virginia politician, came up to me. He said, Don, you ought to write a book because you're the only person I know of who's racing at the highest level. You teach people through your academy and you put on races. Why don't you write the first book of adventure racing? I said, I don't want to write a book. That's the last thing I want to do. So anyways, after back and forth, I agreed to do it on cassette. I would speak and do everything on cassette and send it to him. And we had a lady named uh, Cara Shard from Chicago sometimes, she typed it all up. So I didn't have to do any typing on the computer. <laughs> and, and then I went, you know, working with the government, I did a lot of weapons and tactics training, and I had so much material. And my boss came up to me and said, Don, you have a ton of material here. You should write a book. I said, I don't want to write another book, Jimmy. He said, you should. I mean, you have a ton of material here. I said, no, I don't want to write a book. So anyways, again, I put it all into chapters, and I submitted it to a publisher they said, yeah, we'd like to publish that, but you have way too much information. So I get rid of all the shotgun stuff, all the long gun stuff, and it's just a pistol book called Modern Day Gunslinger. And it was kind of funny because I was talking about that this week because, you know, I'm a, I like old rock and roll. But, you know, that's our era, right? And Ted Nugent got a hold of my book, and he sent me a whole gift bag of stuff. And he said, Don, you're the real deal. I really enjoy your book. Thanks so much. Someone gave it to him. And uh, so that was the second book, The Modern Day Gunslinger. That's awesome. And then man. the Navy. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, after that, and they said, the Marines have a survival manual. The Army has one. The Coast, everyone has one. The SEALs don't have a survival manual. I said, I don't want to write another book. <laughs> they said, well, one, and we'll give you a year advance and uh, a year extra to do it. And I said, okay. So then the, um, the autobiography uh, that was after Bin Laden was killed. And because I had these other books and I was in the sporting world, you know, so my name was out there. Um, I had a publisher called. 
they said, hey, you were the training officer at SEAL Team 6. Why don't you, uh, we'll give you a lot of money if you write a book on how you train SEALs. I said, no, I, I can't do that because anything you'd want to know, I can't talk about. I still have a top secret clearance. You know, everything you want to know are the things I'm not going to talk about. They said, well, other people are talking. I said, well, I don't have it. I don't care. I, I can't. I'm not. And I'm not going to. And the publicist said, Don, you're turning down a lot of money. I said, I don't have an option. Then another publisher called right after. The same conversation took place. And the third one who called said, we know what you're telling people. All we want is your autobiography, your military and your sporting, your sports autobiography. And I said, I'm not trying to sound humble or anything, but that would be boring because I'm not going to tell you anything exciting. <laughs> and what I've done in the SEALs compared to what people are doing nowadays would be boring. And what I've done as an athlete, a lot of people have done the same thing. They say, we, we knew you were going to say that, but that's what we want. So then I put that book together with a really well, a really well established writer, Ralph Bazulu. And um, they said, what do you want to call your book? I gave them all these names. They didn't like any of them. They said, we want to call it Inside SEAL Team 6. I said, that's not what the book's about. Don't, I don't want my friends thinking I'm giving up the secrets. And I had to think a long time before I wanted to call that because that's not what the book's about. There's stories about SEAL Team 6 that aren't classified in there. But it really goes from childhood till government time. Well, we're glad you put it out there because it became a real popular <laughs> book. And it's, uh, you know, sometimes you can't judge a book by its cover. And, and it sounds to me... You know, you're 20 books in now. You know, are you kidding me? You, you're obviously been doing something right. So that's not easy to do. 20 books, right? So, you know, and Ted Nugent, oh my gosh, Cat Scratch Fever, the whole nine yards we go back. But you know what? You've got, you've got somebody in your network on Facebook who's a really good friend of mine, Kip Kelsch, who's the owner of Endeavor yeah. Racing. Yeah. yeah I actually, okay, Kip, yeah. Sir. Yeah. yeah, he's a great guy. We actually climbed together in Mexico. Kip's first high altitude climb was with me in Mexico, like back in 2005, maybe something like that. But Kip's a great guy. He worked with me for a few years. But so, so, so you're doing cool things, man. You're, 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 you've written all these books. What do you want people to know? What do you, especially civilians, Don? You know, we talked about it. You know, every time something happens, this is one reason why we have the radio show because I want to, I want to dispel the negative stereotypes of veterans and especially combat veterans. You know, something happens, the first thing the media asks or people want to know, what was it a veteran? And it's always a Marine or you know a crazy Ranger or, or a Navy SEAL guy. You know, what happened to these people? What do you want? the general public to know about combat veterans? Okay, thank. I'm glad you asked me that. Thanks for asking me that. I can say the years I was in, I thought I was busy. I thought we were all busy. We were gone 300 days a year. We were always away from home. Divorce rate was skyrocketed, you know. People were injured and, and um, come home funerals and, and uh, hospital appointments. The kids really don't know who you are. The wife doesn't know when you're going again, when you're coming back. You should be home for a month and you get recalled, you leave in two weeks. So, and, and, and the op tempo is about 300 days a year, which is busy, you know, and it's doing dangerous things. So we all thought we were busy and we thought that was pretty cool to be that busy and that important and all that. That was nothing compared to what the guys are doing now. I mean, they're still gone 300 days a year. All the other stuff applies. But the difference is the combat vets nowadays, they've, they've been at war their whole adult lives. And that's a whole different story than, than my generation. You know, we saw things here and there. But, but to be at war your entire adult life, what I'd love for civilians to comprehend is, and, and I'll say for the SEAL community, because we've been in some hot water lately, as you know, but... Um, Really, all the units get, have their time in the hot water. But this, I, I think the reason you hear about these guys going rogue a little bit or doing these stupid things every now and then is because we've never had so much pressure on so few people for so long. We've never been at war for 20 years. We've never had 18-year-olds get out of buds and spend their whole adult life at war, 300 days a year gone, fighting and being shot at and killing people. And nobody knows what that does to a psyche. 
And um, and that's what I think civilians should understand. Uh, civilians need to understand that if they go to combat or not, where these young men and women who go into the military, they know what could happen, and they're not making any money or anything. They're living a really, really hard life. Granted, a lot of it's fun, too, or they want to do it. But um, I wish uh, civilians would uh, give them a break. And when, when things happen in the military and it gets in the news, uh, it's really not the civilians. They don't even need to know, and they don't really have an opinion that counts because they don't know what the people are doing over there. They don't know how much stress is on these military people anymore. And it's it's different than the, the pre-wars. And the, the stress they have on these young men and women now, it's beyond anything we've ever had on our military. That's that's what I'd like them to know. You know, well, thank you for sharing that because, you know, they it needs to be heard. And, and you know, that before we pass judgment on anybody, you have to know the full story. You know, let's just say I'm a I'm a person that a man or a woman, you know, I've been in a combat zone. I'm back home. I've transitioned out, you know, rotated out of the service and I'm and I'm not in a great place. You know, I'm 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 just not in a good place. What kind of advice, Don, could you give to a, a person like that? Well, I talk to guys like that all the time, actually. Um, some of my friends, I don't understand them anymore. They're so jumbled. Uh, seals. They're, they're so they they might talk about eight different subjects in, in three sentences, and, and it's really sad. They've just been jumbled up a little bit. You know the the jump in the explosions, the shooting, what they've seen, what they what their buddies have seen, people maybe they've seen being killed and good friends being killed. What that does to them, and I see it often actually. What I also see is these same people are aware of what's going on with them, but they're concerned about what's going on with their fellow teammates. And um, it's really, the only thing I know that helps these guys, they have a lot of programs. The VA is doing much better now, and there are quite a few programs for people like this. But the, the brotherhood, the friendships that are formed from training through your careers in the military uh, and staying in touch with those people and being able to talk with one another uh, people in the old units and things. I think that's the best thing for them all. You know, we just had we just had a, a high-ranking person trying to commit suicide. Very decorated and all. He jumped out a window and he didn't die. Now he's in a hospital, all broken up. He's and failed at suicide. It's terrible what's going on with the guys in the command. But it, it should be stuff. You know, it, it does leak out in the news. I just wish it would. There's nobody who could who can discipline a SEAL or see what's going on with a SEAL better than the SEAL community. If, like, you know, we had that incident where there was a SEAL in trouble and the press was trying to hammer him and President Trump stepped up, stepped up. I mean, that should have never got out to the civilian world. I mean, SEALs know what that guy did, for sure. They also know what he's been experienced. They also know why he was deployed. And they know better than anybody how to discipline them. So in cases like that, it, it seems to me that civilians don't even need to know. The military handles that better than anybody will. And they will handle it harshly, too, because they can't afford to uh, have somebody go haywire overseas. They can't afford that. They have enough on the plate without that happening. But it does happen because things happen to people's brains after all these years of what they're doing. And it's funny you say that, you know, the uniform code of justice, military justice. You know, my dad spent some time at Leavenworth, not as a prisoner, but working, you know, he, he was an army officer. And he he said, he used to say, son, you, you don't want to you don't want to cause any trouble when you're in the military. He said, uh, because they will be swift and there is they, they handle their justice a little bit differently. And uh, thanks for pointing that out. That's a great point. You know, let me ask you this, Don. Do you have this is. Do you have a, a mantra, maybe a personal mantra that you live by every single day? Um, early on, and I get the question all the time, how do you become a SEAL? How do you become a Marine or Special Forces or Delta? And, and uh, I used to have to figure out how to explain the reasoning to a young person. 
I love it when the 12 and 13 and 11 year olds ask me this. And so my mantra always was, and this is what I pass on to others now, it's every day, every single day when you get up, do something to make you stronger. You figure out what that is. Maybe you're going to do a bunch of curls. Maybe you're going to do a bunch of sit-ups. Just do something to make you stronger than the day before, every day, for the rest of your life. And every day, do something to make you faster. That could be doing sprints down the beach. Maybe it's doing fartleks on the track. Maybe it's doing sprints in the pool. Maybe it's hitting that bunch of punching bag instead of 30 times, you know, in a given amount of time, hit it 40 times. But just get faster. So stronger and faster. And then every day, do something to make you smarter. If you want to be a SEAL, learn what happened back when John F. Kennedy created the SEAL teams back in the 60s. Look where underwater demolition teams did when they went to SEAL teams. Look what all the missions and things SEALs have been doing. Look what they're doing today. Look how they work with other units around the world. Get smarter. Learn how to parachute. Learn how to, learn how to dive. Learn weapons. Um, learn a language. Just become better at what you're going to do. If you want to be a SEAL, get smarter on SEAL-type uh, things. And then most importantly, every day do something good for somebody. You know, that could be your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your schoolmate, your next-door neighbor. Just do something good for somebody. Because if you're 12 or 13 years old and you have this mantra, um, by the time you're 18 and you go to apply and get selected, you could be the fastest, strongest, smartest person there. And most importantly, probably the best teammate anybody can have because you're always doing good for things for people. That was the mantra I loosely lived by. And, and that came to me actually before I was a SEAL. And I, and I met Dave Scott, who was the, the toughest iron. The, he had seven Ironman wins. He was the best Ironman triathlete in the world. And I asked him before he won his first triathlon, I said, Dave, how do you stay in such great shape? He said, Don, the doctors tell me I'm wrong, but I exercise every day. I never take a day off. And I started realizing I see all these people going on deployments, coming back, going on work trips, coming back. They always have an excuse. Well, when I get home, I'm going to start working out. When I finish this trip, I'm going to go on a workout program. They always have excuses. <laughs> but if you have... And your mind, every day you're going to do something, even if it's just for a half hour. Just do it. I, I did that for 22 years without a day off, and it worked. I never got out of shape. That's awesome, man. It's great, great advice. You know, so self improvement, not only physical but mental, but also community self improvement, helping people. Got a couple of questions to ask you uh, before we get to how people can contact you. And I've been asking you a lot of questions. Thanks. What's in the plans? for Don Mann right now, and even more so, what does freedom mean to you? Boy, freedom, you get a good sense of freedom once you come back to the United States from many other countries in this world. I always call a tour or going to another country, not on vacation, but for work, U.S. Appreciation Tour, because we have it made over here in the U.S. Unfortunately, we have a lot of lazy people because we have it so easy here, but I think this coronavirus is going to, that's going to, um, I think that's going to, tighten up us as a people in a lot of ways like oh my god look i can go down look at this store look at everything in it and i can go down this road i can go to this theater look at everything we have freedom in our country we can do anything we want to as long as it's legal and and that's not the case in too many other countries so freedom i think a lot of people are getting a, a better sense of what we have what's kind of temporary put down for you know last month or so but freedom to me is really, I see it in a lot of ways. Um, now I'm retired. I'm in, in my 60s. Now freedom, I, I worked hard all my life. I, on a personal level, the freedom I have now is I feel like I can do anything I want. And what I want to do are the things I've done all my life. So I'm going to keep climbing mountains. I'm going to keep riding bikes. The goals I have right now, if I can show you this, there's 54 well, you know this, I know, but there's 54 14ers in Colorado. That, that's awesome, man. I've, I think I've done 21 of them or so. So I hike up these things and I run down. There's 54 of them. So I want to do all the rest of those. And then I, I have a bike that I had made with a 60-tooth chain ring. 
I don't know if you can see the poster way over there on the wall. I can see it, yeah. Andy, Andy Hampson won the – he beat Lance Armstrong on one of the Tour de France legs. He built the bike for me and with a 90-tooth chain ring. And um, so the math is if I could pedal that 90-tooth chain ring, 100 RPMs, I'll go 60 miles an hour. So I'm trying to reach 60 miles an hour on my bicycle trying to do all 54 14ers. So those are my two physical goals. And both of those are going to take another year or so to finish. You know what I love about that, man? You know, this is, this comes from your, obviously your foundation, but you're constantly pushing. And I mean, but pushing in a constant, in a good way, you know, people push and they do the wrong things. You're pushing the envelope, but in a good way, it's even hard to put into words, you know, because when I look at your credentials and I look at the stuff that you've done, you know, you truly are in that league of human being. You know, when they say warrior, you know, you, you know, Don Man has got to be there somewhere because it's impressive, man, and it's inspirational, and people need to hear it. They need, they need, they need to know that there's other human beings that have been dealt certain cards in their deck, and they're playing the game. And I got to tell you, Don, you're playing the game, and you're doing it in high fashion, man. It's impressive. You're making me want to go out, and I know I can't do many push-ups now, but you're making me want to go out there and just start improving myself. But that that's really cool, man. I appreciate that. I know a lot of people do. How can they find out, Don, more about your book? And if somebody, you know, your books, not your book, but they're all the books you have, but how can people reach Don Mann? And, you know, is there anything that you can give to them if they're interested in learning more about you or they need some help or advice? What kind of information can do you want them to have? Well, I, I do like online mentoring, online coaching. I do a lot of talks for businesses before this coronavirus. They all, they all were canceled. But I, I go and I talk with any, anywhere from um, up to 1,500 people with people like Magic Johnson, Ben Carson, Dr. Ben Carson. I do talks with these people. I did my last one was with Monica Lewinsky. And um, so I'll go there to motivate crowds, and they'll have their talk. But really, I, I just I have a website. It's Don, D-O-N, at U-S Frogman, and that's Frogman with two N's, like my last name, dot com. But most people just put my name, Don Man, Navy Seal, in and then Google, and it pops up to that website anyways. So that's easy to do for people. You know, what I did with the coronavirus, I'm pretty excited about. I've been wanting to do it for about 10 years, but this virus caused – I'm not going to let this stop me from going places – so I, I know I don't want to travel on planes now. I don't want to be in hotels. So I bought this little travel van, a little sprinter van. It's going to be isolated, and it's going to be sterile. And I'll be up in the mountains just camping on the side of the trails. I'll have my bikes with me. My kayaks will be on top. And I'm not going to let this thing bother me at all. I, I feel bad for all the people who are bothered by it. It's terrible. And my lungs were affected on Everest, so I have to be careful. So I'm just going to have my little adventure vehicle, isolated, sterilized bubble, and keep doing these things away from people. I'm excited about it. That's awesome, man. You got me excited about it. All I can say is to our listeners out there, you know, we've been having a great conversation with the United States Navy SEAL, Don Mann. He's an author. He's a writer. He's a speaker. He's a motivator. He is a world-class athlete. He is a warrior bar none. And uh, I'm very privileged to... uh, that you took the time to talk to us on Straight Out Combat Radio, and uh, <laughs> you got me psyched up, man. I'm ready to go do something now. It's been nice talking yeah. with you. Well, thanks, Don, and uh, I'm looking forward to the time we can meet, but uh, all I can say is, you know, I wish you relative safety and, and good health, and uh, and I wish you, uh, you know, continued success, man. You make me proud to be an American, and uh, I'm sorry for any of the buddies that you lost while you served. And anybody that we still lose nowadays, but uh, I'm glad that you made it back and uh, and can tell the stories and can help others. It, it just is, it's a dream come true for me, man. I was just an E5 in the army and, uh, you know, I was in between conflicts. I bet my dad was there for a while and guys like you uh, exemplify the very best of what America has. And I'm not, you know, blowing smoke, brother. You just, I know that people and people that don't really understand it right here is a guy that's been around warriors his whole life. And thank God we have you because America would not be what we are today if we didn't have people like you. So 
I mean that, man. So thank you for being on Straight Out of Combat. Thank you, John. Thank you very, very much. It's been a pleasure. Yes, sir. You're welcome. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Before they burn it down.